Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. It's great to see you. It's great to see that we've got visitors with us this morning as well. Welcome. Um, I am, we're in Genesis at the moment. We're looking at a series on origins, first four chapters of Genesis, and I'm continuing with that series this morning. I'm going to start by telling you a story. In September, Phil and I celebrated 23 years of marriage. And I, I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a story of something that happened 23 years ago. We were on our honeymoon. Uh, we went to France for our honeymoon. And while we were there, I learned something about Phil that I hadn't before realised. And uh, <laughs> this is it's something that has featured again and again in our married life over the years. We were in the Loire Valley. It's beautiful. We're walking one day along a riverbank. Uh, we came to a section of the river where the, the hill uh, sleep. What's the word I'm looking for? Slopes steeply down to the riverbank. And there are caves going back into the hill. Um, and as we walked along, lots of these caves, I think they probably keep wine and cheese in them, let's say. Um, and these caves, some of them had gates on, so they were closed. Uh, we came across one that didn't have a gate, didn't have a gate across it. And, um, but there was this large sign, which is going to come up on the board in a moment. Just here, there was. Other one, this one. This sign was on the door. Now, I don't think that that sign needs a lot of translating. This sign, it basically means access prohibited. It means no entry. It means you shall not pass. Okay, so although I am intrigued to find out what is in this cave and to have a little look and to see how far back, actually, into the hillside it goes, I obediently continue to walk on by. A few metres further down the path, Two things happen simultaneously. One, I realise I'm walking alone and Phil is no longer with me. And the second is that I hear a noise, which if you've ever walked into an industrial unit and turned on the lights, chung 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 that noise, that's the noise I hear. It didn't take me long to realise that Phil, whose French is way better than mine, so he understood this sign, had uh, not only, he was walking into the cave. Not only was he walking into the cave, but he had used the switch next to the sign to turn on the lights in order to find out exactly what was in there. In that moment, I learnt that Phil, when uh, faced with a sign that says no, cannot resist the temptation to go ahead and do it anyway. And I've seen it demonstrated over the following 23 years. And for your viewing pleasure here today in the Heatons, I'm going to show you the latest example of this, which was just a few weeks ago here in Manchester, with a sign that clearly says no boating. And Phil is pumping up our boat to go on the lake. <laughs> you see... Phil sees the sign and his natural human instinct is to question it. 
really, does that sign, does it really mean that I can't? Does it apply to me specifically? Is it really dangerous? Why don't they want me to do that? What harm can it possibly do? Now, I personally, I like to pride myself in being a stickler for the rules. If the rules say, Claire obeys, whether it's a sign on a cave or the instructions for a board game, but the reality is, I think that for most of us, if we're honest, we can say that that trait of Phil's is in us, isn't it? We see it in ourselves. We all ask those questions from time to time. And we all sometimes sometimes consciously, sometimes subconsciously, come to the conclusion that it doesn't apply to us, that it won't do anyone any harm, that we know better, and we go ahead and we do the thing that we know we really shouldn't do. And the consequences of those actions vary, don't they? Sometimes we don't really see any consequences that we're aware of, Other times, the consequences for ourselves and for other people can be really quite huge. And this morning, we're going to be looking at this topic of temptation. Now, I know that my example there, it's a bit lighthearted. The reality is that for most of us, temptation in our lives is often a lot more serious, a lot more difficult to deal with than that example. It was Oscar Wilde, Um, who said, I can resist anything except temptation. And I think that sometimes that is how it feels, isn't it? That's how it feels. My hope is that by the end of this morning, by the time we go home, you will be encouraged that this is not a hopeless issue. That actually there is an answer of how to handle temptation in our lives. And for those of you who've given in to temptation... For those of you struggling with the weight of the consequences or struggling with guilt or shame as a result, I hope that this morning you'll see that there's freedom for you. Let's read the passage together. We're in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So what is happening here? Well, We've spent the last few weeks looking at these, this origin series. We've seen uh, that God has created the world. Night and day, land and ocean, animals, birds, fish, plants. And finally, he created the pinnacle of all his creation. The one thing made in his own image, he created man. And it was very good. But it wasn't good for man to be alone. 
So God provided him with a helper who was just right, with woman. And then we come to this passage. Now, we all know that the serpent here is, it's, uh, it's not just any random snake. This is not your average chatty python that we're seeing here. This is a representation of the devil, of Satan, the fallen one, the enemy of God. And what we see here is his attempt to cause the man and the woman to do the, the one thing, the one thing that God had said not to do. Of all the things in the vast garden, God had only said that they must not eat of this one tree because it would bring death. This is the moment when sin enters the world. This is the moment when the perfection which God has created is distorted and soiled. We see Eve going down the slippery slope, questioning what God has said, and eventually she eats from the tree, she shares it with Adam. Sin and rebellion enter the world, they separate, they cause a barrier between the very good pinnacle of creation, which is us, and the creator God. But where did that start? Where did it start? Eve doesn't just see the tree and decide to eat, does she? Something happens here, and that something is what we've come to know as temptation. So what, is, what exactly is temptation? Well, when we hear the word, I think we, have, we all have a fairly good idea of what it means, don't we? But let's take a little bit of time to understand it a bit more. According to uh, the, the fount of all knowledge, which is Wikipedia, as we all are fully aware, temptation is a desire to engage in short-term urges for enjoyment that threatens long-term goals. The Oxford English Dictionary describes temptation as the desire to do or have something that you know is bad or wrong. Now, I think that we can go even further in understanding what temptation is in a biblical sense, even just by looking at this passage that we're in today. See, temptation is a ploy of the enemy, the devil, and he is described as, as the father of lies, the deceiver. When we're being tempted, we're being deceived. And we see, I think we see in this passage, two key ways that temptation deceives us. The first is that temptation causes us to doubt. Temptation causes us to question God and his word, to question the truth. And we see it here. Did God really say? And this is what happens, isn't it, when we're tempted? I use the example of Phil seeing the sign, his natural instinct being to question, does it really mean that? And that's what temptation does at its most basic level. It causes us to question, to doubt the truth of what God and his word says. Now, we're all tempted in different ways, by different things at different times, I'm going to go for an example that actually affects most of us at some point in our lives. Sex, sexual sin. However, whatever form that takes for you, it affects most of us at some point in our lives. The opportunity to sin presents itself and fundamentally what goes on in our subconscious is a questioning, a doubting, 
of whether what God says, what the Bible says about sex is actually true. And that's the same for all temptation. So we could describe temptation as doubting, questioning, disbelieving the truth of God and his word. Did God really say that? Is that really what God meant? Does it really apply to me in my specific circumstances with with the particular issues that I face? The second way that temptation seeks to deceive us is that temptation twists the truth. It has a way of making things which are wrong seem attractive. Making us believe that things which God says are bad for us are actually good. Or at the very least, they won't do anyone any harm. It has a way of twisting our focus. See it here. Did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Do you see the twist of the truth there? God said they mustn't eat from one tree. The devil lies. You're not allowed to eat from all the trees? The twist of the focus onto what God said no to, rather than all of the many things that God had said yes to. And then this, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will surely be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's twisted, it's mixed up. God has said that they mustn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is true. But the twisting comes because Satan tries to make out that it would be a good thing to have their eyes opened. Whereas God had pointed out that that way lay death for them. The twisting of the truth. When they ate, their eyes were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they felt ashamed. And that is not a good thing. Death And rebellion entered the world just like God said it would. Yet when Satan describes it, he somehow makes out that it'll be a good thing. You'll be like, God, it'll be great. Your eyes will be opened. What could possibly go wrong? Does that sound familiar at all? It's that internal battle, isn't it, that goes on when we're tempted. The twisting of the truth can't possibly hurt anyone. No one else will know about it. It's only me who's going to be affected. At the very foundation of all temptation are those two things, doubting, questioning God and his word, twisting of what God has said. And that often leads us to believing the lie that satisfying our deepest desires is our job, that it's not God's job, that somehow we will do it better than God will, that we know better. Now, an important thing that I want to point out here is this. Temptation is not sin. Being tempted is something that happens to every human being. Even Jesus was tempted. Being tempted does not mean that you are weak. But temptation is serious because it can lead us to sin. And sin gets in the way of our relationship with God. So it's really important that we are victorious in the face of temptation. So what do we do about it? How 
Do we handle temptation when it comes? Because we all know it does come. Rachel Gilson put it like this. I think I've got a picture of her. There she is. Uh, She put it like this. She wrote an article for Christianity Today. And she was speaking uh, specifically of sexual temptation for her in the form of same-sex attraction. But what she says about it here, the biblical truth that she says is true for every type of temptation. She says this, temptation is common. Even this temptation is common. You are not alone and you are not second class. You possess God's spirit. And in any moment that you face temptation to lust, temptation to look, temptation to act, God has declared that it is not too much for you. He will provide the way of escape. Look for it in faith. Your flesh will protest that it isn't true, that it knows better than God what you can and can't handle. This lie is as old as the garden, after all. And she goes on to quote 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, which says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may may be able to endure it. Now, I could give you a list of things to do when temptation comes, a list of different ways of escape. And that would be good and it would be very helpful We could look at how Jesus responded to temptation by knowing the word of God, quoting truth. We could look at, talk about learning how to not putting ourselves in situations that make us vulnerable to temptation. And all of these things would be helpful and they are helpful. But I want to focus today on one particular way of escape that God has provided for every one of us who are uh, believers and followers of Jesus, something that underpins all of those other things. I want to look at a way of escape that God has given us for us to be able to endure temptation. We're going to look at Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 14. Feel free to turn to it, it is going to appear here. It says this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This passage is talking about the grace of God. The grace of God is really the best thing to enable us to be victorious in the face of temptation. The grace of God teaches us to say no. It's really easy when we come to a topic like this. We're talking about temptation to get caught up in religious thinking. We can easily slip into the thou shalt not kind of lists of things. We all know that temptation comes. We all know that the things that we're tempted to do are wrong. 
They're not for our best. They go against God's best plan for us. So it's easy to start thinking that of the Christian life as a list of what we can and can't do. Things that God says yes to and things that God says no to. And sadly, many believers live their whole lives that way, with that thought in their back of their minds. Well, I would really love to go out and get drunk with my mates, but God says no. I'd really like to be able to have a sexual relationship with whoever I want to, but God says no. I would love to smack you in the mouth because you are an idiot, but God says no. You get the idea. And you know what? It's really exhausting to live your life that way, to be constantly making decisions based on what someone has told us we should or shouldn't do. And it's also not a very effective way to live a life of freedom. Because if we're honest, we are all really good at rebelling against what we're told to do, aren't we? I mean, that might actually just be me, but I know for me, I don't like being told what to do. I really don't. It doesn't motivate me. It, doesn't, it just makes me want to say, uh, no, no, it's all right. I'm, I'll work it out. I'll do it my way, thanks. So you'll be pleased to hear that that is not what is required of us as followers of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that we can do whatever we like. I'm not saying that there is no right and wrong. What I'm saying is that the Christian life is not a matter of following rules and regulations. We're not simply required, tick, tick, to fulfil a list. The Bible tells us actually that Jesus did that on our behalf. He perfectly fulfilled the law because it was impossible for us to do. And then he gave himself to death on a cross. Why? So that we can be free to live in the relationship with God that was always intended. The relationship that Adam and Eve had before this fateful day when temptation and sin entered the world. This is grace. Grace is a much better motivator than law. We learn to say no, not because we feel that we have to fulfil the law, but because our desires are motivated differently. Terry Virgo Um, said this, no is a word that we must be instructed to say. It is an antisocial word. It goes against the tide. It takes courage and commitment to say it. It needs strong motivation and grace motivates powerfully. So I'm going to spend the next few minutes just looking at three ways in which grace teaches us to say no. Three things that motivate us and enable us to be victorious in the face of temptation. The first is this. Grace teaches us that Christ's righteousness is credited to my account. Again, Terry Virgo. How, he says this. How does grace teach us 
begins by telling us that we are totally acceptable to God through faith in Christ. We are justified freely as a gift. So I am a winner before I start. I am accepted before I have done anything. We start accepted, qualified, justified as a gift. The righteousness of Christ is freely given to me. Not only to start my Christian life, but every day of my life. And he is the same yesterday, today and forever. His totally righteous life of magnificent decisions, perfect, holy choices, steadfast purity in the face of fierce temptation is freely credited to my account. Let's just take a moment for that to sink in. In some places, there would be a whoop and a cheer at that point. I'm going to read that last bit again. The righteousness of Christ is freely given to you. Not only to start your Christian life, but every day of your life. And he is the same yesterday, today and forever. His totally righteous life of magnificent decisions, perfect holy choices, steadfast purity in the face of fierce temptation is freely credited to your account. It's better, it's better. This passage in Titus, it tells us that Jesus has purified us for himself. And this truth sets us free, sets us free from the constant sense that we have got to try harder. We have got to do better because it has already been done and it's been freely given to us. When we grasp this, when we really begin to understand it, and I'm not sure we ever do fully understand it before we are with him in glory. But as we begin to grasp it, rather than causing us to say, oh, Okay, then I can just do whatever I like. It actually has the opposite effect. It frees us to say no from a heart that's changed because we increasingly realise what Christ has done and we increasingly realise who he has made us to be now. So we willingly choose not to act out of character with the righteous, purified person we are now in him. The righteousness of Christ is credited to my account. Secondly, grace shows us how much Jesus gave. A number of years ago, we had a couple of young ladies, Naberta and Tandy, round at our house for dinner. Now, I don't have a photograph of this meal. I know I often use photographs of meals. Don't have one of this meal. Uh, Naberta and Tandy came round for dinner. These two young women, they were students at university. They'd left their families to come and study in the city where we lived. And on this particular day, at the dinner table, we came round to the conversation of household chores. Now, it may be that I had asked Hannah and Sophie to do something and they'd said no. Um, But one of our guests, she said something that I've never forgotten because it changed my thinking about this. She said, when I was younger at home... I used to get really frustrated when I was expected to help my mum out in the kitchen to do the dishes or to help with the food. I used to argue, I used to object when I was asked or when I was told to help. 
Then after I left home, I had to do those things for myself. And suddenly I realised how much my mum had done for me and my siblings as we were growing up. How much she'd given. Now when I go home, I get stuck in and I willingly help my mum out. Because I acknowledge how much she has given to us. And it struck me in that moment how her viewpoint and therefore her actions had changed just with that one under simple understanding of how much her mum had done, how much her mum had given to her. And the same is true of our relationship with God. The more we understand and recognise the cost of the grace of God towards us, how much Christ gave that he he freely gave himself for us. The more we're motivated, the more we're freed to say no to temptation and to live godly lives, changes our actions. It's a different motivation. The third thing is also in this passage that this life is not all there is. We are passing through. It's a bit like when you go on holiday and you know um, you're not staying for very long. We travelled up to Scotland during the summer and on the way up there we had a couple of one-night stopovers before we reached our final destination where we stayed for a week. I did not unpack my cases on those one-night stopovers because I knew we weren't staying. I didn't settle in and become invested because I knew we weren't going to be there for very long. We didn't belong there. As we learn that we are eternal creatures whose citizenship is in heaven, as we begin to understand that actually we're aliens passing through this world, we recognise that our allegiance is to the culture and the kingdom of God. We can be set free from the demands and the expectations of the culture that we live in. When we really begin to understand that the grace of God means we're living for an eternal future, we're waiting for the return of Jesus, for the world to be restored to the perfect and glorious thing that God created, then our desire to fulfil those short-term pleasures is reduced because the understanding of the long-term picture becomes so much more important and consuming. So I hope that those three things have given you a glimpse of the truth and the, the power of this way of escape that God has given us. Grace, his grace, understanding and living in grace enables us to defeat temptation. It's grace that teaches us to say no because grace changes us from the inside out rather than trying to impose rules on us from the outside in. We're able to live no longer trying and striving to meet a set of rules, but changed from the inside with an ever-increasing desire, as the passage says, to live a godly life. So if you're struggling with temptation right now, in, in any area of life, whatever that is, I want to encourage you to invest in drawing closer to Jesus, to know him, to experience him, to allow him to love you, 
to receive his grace. Because ultimately that's the thing that enables us to resist temptation. That's the thing that frees us from sin. Jake, do you want to? Now, it would be remiss of me not to acknowledge that the reality is we do give in to temptation sometimes. You might be sitting in the room thinking, well, that's all great, Claire, but it's too late for me because I've already done X, Y, or Z. And the truth is that we all have in different areas. The amazing thing about the grace of God is that it's not the end of the road when temptation has got the better of us. Because sin has been conquered on the cross. God is full of mercy and forgiveness. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What Jesus did for us means that when we do sin, and we all do, there is a way back. Whatever it is that you've struggled with, whatever it is that you've done or said or thought, can and will be forgiven by the Father. And he is eagerly and lovingly waiting for you to run into his arms and to tell him all about it. There is nothing so big that Jesus' blood hasn't covered it. There is nothing so bad that he will not lovingly restore you. The enemy's biggest lie is that what you've done is so bad that you can't talk to anyone about it, that you can't talk to God about it. But that is a lie. So I want to encourage you this morning to do two things, if that applies to you. Firstly, to talk to someone here who you trust. To allow us to stand with you and pray with you and show you God's love. And secondly, to come running into God's arms. So even now as we worship together, to come into his arms and let him forgive you, let him love you. Let him pour out his grace, which will teach you to say no. So as we, as we sing our worship just now, for some of us, this might be an opportunity to confess our sin, to allow God's forgiveness in. For some of us, it might be a time of experiencing and grasping just exactly how big his grace is again, to help us to say no to temptation. But for all of us, for all of us, this is a moment that we have each week together as a body. Do you want to stand? Because we're going to start in a minute. This is a moment where we can fix our eyes on Jesus. This is a moment for us to know his presence and his power with us, to experience his grace. This is a moment to tell him how much we love him, how great he is, how thankful we are for all that he's done for us. This is really a time to enjoy being with our Father, to acknowledge his rule and his reign over our lives. This is a a moment where we can use the gifts that he has given to encourage one another, comfort one another, to build one another up. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to meet with us as we come before you now. Lord, we come into your presence eager to tell you how amazing you are, how wonderful you are, how grateful we are, Lord, for your grace and your mercy poured out over us. And Jesus, you are so welcome here. Lord, draw near to us as we draw near to you and we sing your praises this morning. Amen.